Hey everybody, welcome to the Apolog Podcast. Uh, this week I'm skipping the spots because I don't think it's that important. I know who's going to the sites that I'm advertising and there doesn't seem to be a lot of you going there. If you want to go, you can get in touch with me through the website and then you can uh, listen to the spots again. But for now, I'm just going to give a break on those because I don't think they're actually doing anything. In fact, probably a lot of you are just skipping over it. So regardless... But I still have fetchclass.com. I still have bot.96.lt. You can go there if you want to, and you can check out what's there. Uh, check out Fetch Class because there's some cool teachers on there, and uh, you can learn stuff. But that's about it. That's the only spot you're going to get. This week, Chris Kennedy and Mike Lustig of Ruth Ruth is on the show. I couldn't be happier. This band, Ruth Ruth, is w one of my favorite bands of the 90s. Maybe even one of my top five bands of all time. They put out some albums. They were really, really cool to come on the podcast and talk. I really appreciate it. I'm going to forego the intro and I'm going to play one of their tunes so you can actually hear this band, Ruth Ruth. Thanks a lot, everybody, and enjoy this band, Ruth Ruth, on the Apolog Podcast. I am sitting here right now on a video chat with Chris Kennedy and Mike Lustig from Ruth Ruth, a band that influenced me as a songwriter, influenced me as a just listening to music. I heard so many good things in your band that you can draw back to 20 years before, as well as what's current and new at the time and what going forward, you guys are still... I would say, yeah, we're. I think we're lifelong friends and we both like playing music, so... I think it's always going to kind of come and go 
you know, whether we're active or not, I think we always are. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to how you guys met. How did you guys meet? Well, um, we met through my girlfriend at the time. Um, I mentioned to her uh, that uh, I'd like to find, uh, put together a band and, and she had a friendship with Mike and she recommended that we get together and um and I liked him right away. <laughs> this is high school we're talking about. Like, yeah, uh, 80, 88, 80, probably earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh we met in eighty seven. Because the first yeah. the first gig can't even call it a gig. The first time we ever played music in a bar was on my eighteenth birthday, which was wow. June of eighty seven. Yeah, I went to go hear Mike play uh, in a band that he had at the time at, at the park, and um, I remember being blown away when I heard him. I I, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I mean, he uh, he played great, and um, and and then we hit it off. So, so you guys just sort of. High school friends is 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 that how that sort of or were you in the same high school? Well, you we went were... to different. No, we were different high schools. I, I went to high school with Chris's then girlfriend. Okay, and then she introduced us, but we were at different high schools. Okay, whereabouts at the time were you from? Were you were where were you? We're two t- one town over. I was in Ridgewood in New Jersey, North Jersey, mm-hmm. and Chris was in Midland Park. Okay, just two suburbs that can write close to each other. Very cool. Very cool. And so at the time, who was playing drums? And did you sort of just sort of say, we're going to put a band together? Or is it one of those things like a high school kind of like, this is what we're going to do? Um, well, I had a friend, um, uh, a drummer, and we were looking to put a band together. And um, Mike, did you come over with Pat then? Did we get Pat to with? Did Pat come with you or? Yeah, yeah you. Well, you saw us play with Pat. I have, I have my own band, and we were just doing covers, mm-hmm. Stones covers, stuff like that. A high school band, and um, Chris had a drummer, and I think you had other guitar players kind of come and go, right? Mm-hmm. Is in your school, and uh, yeah, so the bass player and myself went to play with Chris and his drummer. And it stuck because Chris was the only guy writing songs. Everybody else I ever encountered in high school was playing covers. It was all we did. Mm-hmm. And so Chris was game changer to me. Oh, wow. And what were the early influences, Chris, for you? Like, what, what was the, what were you into at the time? At the time, um, well, uh, uh, I had been a big Beach Boy fan. And um, I, I read a... Uh, a biography on on them and uh i i became infatuated with brian and with uh, him the role that he played you know production and writing and and uh i don't know what happened but at 15 or however old we were about 15 maybe a little older that really connected with me and um and they they were the band that really kind of got me into writing and everything. I don't know. I had kind of a weird, um, a weird, not weird, but I I didn't like, I was a beach boy fan, but I didn't really like anybody 
I didn't know anybody current, Mm -hmm. you know, like I, I, I didn't, I, I, uh, really didn't get into anybody new, which I think Mike brought to the table. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, when I met Mike, I felt like, you know, like my whole, um, uh, then my, my knowledge got much broader on, uh, you know, Mike at the time, Mike liked, um, the clash and he liked, uh, uh, er- everything that I didn't know anything about, you know? And then when I heard him, Lou Reed, you know, and, and when I heard it, when I heard them, I'm like, wow, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, and I, I, I got the connection between the beach boy thing and, and the clash and, and Lou Reed and every, you know, how it all connected and it made a connection with me. I hear a lot of, uh, like Elvis Costello and I hear a lot of other, you know, things in your music that that i think i don't hear beach boys that's the whole uh that's the whole wacky thing you know like you've taken you know i have my beach boys phase too i mean pet sounds is phenomenal i think everybody has a beatles phase everybody has a beach boys phase and how how it influences them both writing songs and 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 how all these things and and i i had my squeeze phase and i had my elvis costello phase (laughs) You know that came at t- t- mm-hmm. two completely de- decades. You know, different decades. And when I when I hear the singing, the phrasing of what you guys do, I hear a lot of that um, melodic um, pull to that. I would never expect in a million years Beach Boys. So really, yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I uh, yeah, it, uh, it. I know what you mean. Yeah, and like uh, I don't even think. Uh, I don't even know how that happened. I don't, uh, you know, we, we've gotten that a lot and I don't know where, um, where that came from with the, with the writing other than the fact that, um, they're all kind of connected, you know, sure. with, uh, with, uh, Beach Boys uh, lyrically where, where they got deeper, you know, okay. while they went along and, yeah. and pretty, um, pretty hardcore you know if you if you if you pay attention to what they did later on and and uh oh yeah they they stopped writing about cars and started writing about other things i mean and it's funny to think that the beach boys actually influenced the beatles you know not just for sonic reasons but for um for for production and for studio and just how to you know how to record in in the studio and i don't know if you've ever been to cello studios where pet sounds was actually recorded but I, I, no. I walked into the studio too, where Pet Sounds was recorded, and I'm like, God, you could just smell and feel like, oh my God, I'm here, <laughs> I'm at, I'm in Mecca, you know, so kind like of, church, yeah, yeah. I mean, we'd work on arrangements and stuff, and and put together things, but Chris was always the writer. Mm-hmm. Chris always came in with the songs. Okay, yeah, yeah. E- even from the even early Ruth Ruth all the way up to. Later, Ruth, Ruth, and okay, that's yeah, cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. um, yeah, it, it. Uh, but I, I leaned heavy on the band too, though. You know, like mm-hmm. for arranging and yeah. that kind of thing. A power trio. You were a four, a four in, in your band for a while, or is it you? Were, but you were primarily a threesome. No, a we were. <clears throat> you know, Mike. I thought about that uh, the other uh, night with Mike Todd. Right? <clears throat> yeah. weren't we? Weren't we playing? Um, with we were playing with another guy with Dave, mm-hmm. yeah. I think, and then he um, couldn't make a show, uh, and 
and we were going to do the show anyway. And we were, we became a trio that night. <laughs> Is that how it happened? Yeah. I, I remember the feeling of, I remember the moment of saying like, cause Chris had always played guitar and I, I remember having that discussion of being like, well, I could play bass and you said I could play bass and somehow it just became you. Well, you were the better, you were the better guitar player. And, and we were like, we're doing the show. We didn't feel like, uh, getting, uh, letting the, the gig go. You know, we had the show and, and we were going to play it. And I don't think that show went very well, but, <laughs> but, but I know, I do remember that after Mike, Dave and I were like, we should be a trio. It, it, like, it felt like a lot of pressure had gone out the window. You know, uh, of, also, of, in in those days too, the, the volume in clubs was out of control. Like, I, I mean, it's so it's different now, I guess. Right. But we always played so loud. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So going from four down to three, it was still ridiculously <laughs> sonic. Yeah. just made it much more bearable. Yeah, bearable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might have been it. We looked at each other and we were like, we can hear better. You know, why don't we? Why don't we? do that and then from that from that night on we uh we um that that had been the night really that ruth ruth kind of came about it's incredibly hard to um you look at a band like sam i am and they have two distinctly different guitar players in their band one guy is the noodler and the other guy is the straight chords guy so it's really hard and that took years and years of development for that to sort of find their place. So do you think maybe if you hung on or if you did show up, maybe you'd find a reason to have two guitars? I know what you're saying, though, is everybody's just playing power chords. It's stupid loud and, you know, it's pointless. You know, you just might as well, mm -hmm. you know, have a, a doubler on your guitar or whatever. But having two distinctive sounds is really hard to try and make them mesh. And it comes down to equipment. It comes down to playing styles and, and all that mess. So, but... Uh, as a three-piece, I think as a bass player, you can kind of, you find your voice. You find your voice and you can hear yourself to the point where now I'm going to be singing a little bit of vocal melody or playing a little bit, you know, so you can find your find your voice a little bit better. Later on, we did um, we did have Michael Koch come in okay. to play guitar. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that, that worked out all right, you know, it... it um, but then we went back to being a trio eventually. Mm -hmm. I don't know. We, I think we, we, we tend to lean toward that in our group, toward that cleaner configuration. You know? It's that one more seat in the van that you can play with and, and put stuff. Right. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> the, um, so, yeah. so you guys did like a residency at the Continental, and I found out through just by going there with a band and finding out that you guys had played like a week at a time at the Continental. Is that kind of what got you in the door with labels or, or were you just trying to just play for the sake of playing? Did you know someone there? Like, how did you get in there to do, cause it's Manhattan, you're playing New York city. How did you get in there for weeks at a time? Basically we, I mean, we were trying to play anywhere we could. Uh, we were very tunnel vision in terms of developing a, a following a career getting a record deal we just we want it real bad so we play anywhere and um most of the clubs we go on super late you know one two in the morning and things like that on a wednesday and none of your friends are coming out for that and everything so continental was just one of a million clubs that we played at but um 
it's also a big kind of drinking room. So they'd have people hanging out in there for happy hour, five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock. And I think their music started at nine. So we asked the owner if we could go on at eight before they normally would have music and we do it for free and just, can we start an hour earlier? We'll play every, I think it was Wednesdays. Um, mm -hmm. And we did it for a long time, like a year or more. I mean, it was, it was a while before, then they started, you know, when we started actually catching on, they moved us to later slots and they kind of faded into regular shows there and other places. But yeah, maybe a year, maybe even 18 months, we played every week. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. And when did people start yeah. come sniffing around to say, I like your band, I want to I put your album out? Like that's, how did that, how did, how did the labels come to you or did you go to them? And because I, I kind of know the game, but I'd love to know how you guys started your whole getting people to come out or the involvement in getting a label interest in your band is very i don't know sketchy sometimes like trying to make them like you if they like you did you meet somebody in a label that you could trust i guess is the main question do you remember i tell you the truth i don't remember i, I mean i remember getting our manager mm -hmm. i managed ruth ruth and I think we had almost nothing going on when he came on board with us. Right. But I don't remember how the label thing started. It got crazy. We had offers from a bunch of labels. Like we had the the dream of like a few different labels fighting over us. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But how did that start? I don't even, rem I can't remember. The I think I know that when I thought of it, I agree with you. I think it might've been our manager uh, who um, got got the word out and i think he um got people to come down and uh and um and then we were able to help out too you know what i mean like i think uh, but i think brian our, our manager would get credit for that you know for yeah. for for reaching out to people and uh, he, he had a pretty good um outreach at that time yeah and um and we were able to uh, get a couple people uh, to begin to talk about the band. The other incredible thing that we were that we were doing um, that Mike actually came up with. You worked at a record shop, yeah. And they were throwing out. Why don't you tell it? <clears throat> there was a com. Oh God, I can't remember the name of the company anymore. But there was a company. So, and this is you know, or very early '90s, I guess. Um, there was a company where you could make a mixed tape on what looked like a jukebox. So you'd walk up in a record store, you'd walk up to what looks like a jukebox. You can pick your songs and then it spits out a cassette tape of your playlist. Um, that's how old I am. <laughs> that, I check. That exists. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the company went out of business and the record store had thousands of those blank cassettes in the stock room because you'd have to load the machine with just blank tapes and they were only i don't know 15 minutes per side they're real short it wasn't like a regular 90 minute cassette they used to have so uh the record store or the company i'm not sure who ordered them to be destroyed and i asked the manager i said can, can i take them i'm in a band i could use these and they said no so but i was the guy in charge of throwing them out <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I just, <laughs> so I just I put them in my car. You threw them left, out. Threw left, them out into your car. The bands, we handed them out, 
free because we could afford to do it. Um, and we gave them just to everybody. I mean, not just at shows, but like there were times where we'd stand down in the East Village and like if someone walked by in a leather jacket or they looked like they like rock or something, we'd be like, here, here's a tape. Check it out. Or a pretty you know, girl. Or a girl, you mm. know. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, we had that. It worked. I mean, it yeah. kind of worked because we just had tons of tapes out there, I guess. We we kind of we we kind of when Mike mentioned before that we were on a mission we were kind of on a mission in the in a way of that we weren't going to do it the 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 way that you should do it you know like you have your album available at at a gig for people to buy and they're they're like an, an eight dollar album and no one will ever buy it and we didn't even want to deal with that and we gave it away for free so we we knew that maybe they were going in the garbage right after people walked out but we were giving away 20 of them 20 people were walking out with our tape right and uh that that probably helped grow the momentum you know yeah yeah and everybody walked out with it with the tape yeah and and then the recording part of it was it just like uh one day in the studio kind of thing or did you actually just do it in your basement like is it that diy is that how you how do you put that tape together with music? Oh oh no they they were um they were like a rough demo mm -hmm. tape that um I probably did uh, on my own I think at that time I I did it with a drum machine and and real rough and Chris you was know. Chris was if I dare say he was amazing with I don't know what drum machine you had but the drum tracks on Chris's old demos were ridiculously good. Like, and to the point that when we did our first record and we had producers coming to meet with us and we were trying to pick what producer we were going to go with, I don't know if any of them asked if that was a drum machine. I don't think they, <laughs> I, they all thought it was live drums. That's amazing. Yeah. And the, and the yeah. sound, the sound was shit, you know, it was just yeah. that the, the, patterns and the and the track was just so good do you remember what that yeah. what that machine was chris i have it um <laughs> and i wore the i wore the hell out of it no no i don't really remember but um it'll be I, in Sotheby's next week yeah yeah <laughs> i learned my way around it i, I, I could manipulate it. It, it to the point of when dave our drummer right when when ted came in when we were doing laughing gallery yeah he, he went how come you're not playing it like you do on the t and Dave was like, I didn't play on the tape, man. You're in a machine. You know? Yeah. Wow. That's that awesome. Was a, rough, a rough moment for Ted. Yeah. Yeah, your producer. Yeah, yeah. The guy who's supposed to have the golden yeah. ear can't determine what a drum machine yeah. and a real drummer is. Whoops. That's uh, yeah, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, and I think I think we were we were keeping quiet about it too. Like we yeah. didn't want to Oh yeah. I remember when we uh when Brian, our manager, first got interested in us, and we had nothing going on, uh, so it was we were excited to meet with a guy who was who maybe could hook us up. He actually did, which is even more incredible. But when we played that show, we wanted because Chris did the demos entirely on his own, so we played in a studio for Brian because we didn't want to do any <laughs> gig. And Brian said the same thing: like, is this the band on the tape? Because, <laughs> Because we even, I think we, Amnesia from Laughing Gallery is one of the songs. And I remember Chris gave me that demo like a day or two before we were playing for Brian. And we tried it playing in front of Brian as if we had played it a zillion times, but we had never played it together. 
and it, right. uh, I don't think it was all that good. And uh, yeah, I don't know. And Brian was perplexed, know. momentarily perplexed. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I was thinking yeah. having having a manager that you did, having someone that's willing to sort of walk in front of a bus or to put put their whole name on the line for 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 music. It's kind of cool. I mean, where did he come from? What, what, what's, what was his background? Was he always a manager or did he manage other people? Did he have previous successes as a manager or was he just a dude? He was, uh, he was I, I believe, more of a, a, a concert promoter. He had a company called Family Tree up in Vermont. Very like hippie. He did all kinds of like hippie shows and he's... Was always like talking our ear off about fish and stuff. We didn't want to hear it. Listen to. But him. didn't Andy know him? Andy Staffel? No, Andy, you're Andy, your brother. Oh no, but that is yeah. My brother knew our manager's father. A weird. Uh, that was it, it weird came through that way. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Yeah. You're right. It did. Yeah. yeah. We couldn't My get brother. anything going on. Yeah. Yeah. We couldn't get anybody. We couldn't get anything happening. And and then that little lead came through Mike and and the family and we, right. we, we followed it up and Brian, um, I, I, I mailed Brian the tape and, uh, he, ne he never, uh, played it. And, uh, and then I, uh, I think it might've Mike and I were probably, or I don't remember Mike, if you were doing it or if I handled it alone or whatever, but for a month, I think a month or two, I, I tried to follow up with Brian and he kept blowing me off and, and I kept mailing him new material and, and finally I called him and, and he went, you know, you keep bothering me. Um, and, uh, let me, let me put it on now and I'll call you back. I, I, I'll call you back. I could tell he wanted to do it to get rid of me, you know? Mm -hmm. And he called me back and he went, what the fuck? Where the <laughs> hell? <Yeah. laughs> and he went, what are you? And from that moment he had a fire under him and, uh, and, which caught me off guard. I mean, I thought we were getting blown off again for the 90th time, you know, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, he had, he had the fire. He, he had been a champion in the, in the beginning. Yeah. That's very cool. Like I said, having somebody on your side to speak on your behalf, it's, um, I think it's somewhat of a lost cause in the, I guess the independent punk rock or whatever you want to call it scene is everybody likes doing things themselves, but having somebody to fight your battles for you is a, um, it's a huge asset, whether or not, mm. you know, you as the band, you're just three cool dudes that play music. And then you have that guy that's fighting for you. That's very important. So in, did he carry on into sure. the, into the, into the, into the larger label stuff? Or was he, you know, did he, did he burn out? Like, did he stick with you forever? No, I mean, he, we were with him until the, we were with him through Ultra V. Wow. We, uh, yeah, the, the thing that came after Ruth Ruth. Yeah, no, we hung in there with him for a for a five five year run, I think. That's very cool because a band, you yeah, know, come you know, coming from from yeah. playing in clubs in in uh, in New York to to being on a label to touring. There's a lot of people coming your direction to saying, you know, you could do better. I could do better. This, you know, there's always somebody out there trying to do better or more for you. But loyalty is a very strong um, asset to, to, to have and, and sticking with somebody. And, and luckily, he was a good guy or otherwise you wouldn't have stuck with him for so long. So that's good. Kudos to you guys for, for that because 
you know, I've seen it happen where managers come in and say, oh, I can do a much better job or labels come in and say, I could do a much better job. But, you know, it's the devil, you know, well, you know what, to be to, to be truthful, mm-hmm. I think um, when when Laughing Gallery uh, didn't connect and it didn't happen um, like maybe we all hoped it would. We, we we were a bit unhappy with Brian and we and we might not have been that faithful you know we were but we never had an opportunity uh, no one no other manager ever came and went well I think I think you're great right did they well yeah I have a different take on it Ooh. which I think oh, okay. y- you'll remember yeah what happened was uh, part of when, so laughing gallery the song starts doing well on invited on the radio blah 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 the woman who ran our sub label of American records wanted to manage us. She was uh, really egocentric. She was, she wanted to take over the world. Basically she was that kind of person. She wanted to manage the band and it started a huge conflict between Brian and her. And that was the root of a lot of our problems with not being able to get anything done at the label. So it kind of happened. Well, exactly what you're talking about started to happen, but it was with someone from our record company that wanted to manage us. Right? Did, Would you say that's right, Chris? Or do you wow, remember that uh, at all? Uh, well, no, no. Now that you're talking about it, I, I do. I mean, the relationship between her and 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 our, and our manager went bad, uh, pretty bad, very quickly. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you remember that, then yeah, I don't know if yeah. I ever remember her going. Yes, yeah, she wanted to manage um, us. Yeah, maybe we should have let her. <laughs> yeah, and, maybe, and it might have been she. I mean, she hated our manager, so well, it might course. have been even more of like, "I'll manage you guys, just get rid of him." It might have had that connotation, but yeah, it, it might. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, we were we were um, we we. I didn't want to give you the the wrong impression of of that we were beautifully faithful for you know like and, <laughs> and it had been a you know i mean we were we really wanted to um the, like the lightning hit with uninvited and laughing gallery and we thought uh that it couldn't go wrong uh that we reached a point where you kind of you've you've made it you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and then we watched it go wrong on a whole new level that we didn't never even knew about. We knew about it going wrong down the ladder, you know what I mean? Yeah. But when you were up there and you actually have a, a record nationwide on the radio and you're getting airplay on MTV and and you have everybody uh, telling you you're going to be huge and then to watch that kind of uh, change. Mm-hmm. Um, change that, that the, the, way a, the, the way the Hindenburg changed. Right, from to fiery ball yeah. of uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to say that there's a hybrid label manager thing going on, and and that's happening these days. And I have to tell you, because I tour manage bands too, that sometimes it's not a good thing having your manager as your label. And I mm. played in a band that managed us as well as put out our records for us, and what a struggle that was! It was because. They, mm. they had other labels they had to speak to as well as being our label. So at the same time, you're saying, please go do something because you're our manager. They don't want to screw up their label 
affiliation. So I think you made a good decision right. keeping your manager. I think <laughs> you know. I guess that's all I'm saying. Right. Uh, yeah. So 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 having I guess you were just saying having a, a major a major record label, you know, and having all of this excitement to have it be a short lived, not short lived, but relatively industry speaking short lived. You were you a little you're frightened because all this work you put in, or was it something that you're like, no, I think we should just stick. You know, we have to keep fighting this battle because um, a lot of people get discouraged by it and then they they just leave the business or they turn to other things. You know, was this a was this a we got to keep going, struggle, let's keep touring. Like, how did you compete with the fact that the label wasn't maybe as interested you as as you might have wanted them to be? I mean, it's also it's all gets so convoluted because we switched labels with pretty much every record we ever did. So there was never after Laughing Gallery, there was never a thought of stopping. Mm -hmm. It was just a thought of we have to get this like started again. But we knew we had so many problems at American Records and so many people there didn't like us, didn't like our manager um, that we asked if we could record. I forget how Epitaph got involved. Um, we ended up asking if we could record for Epitaph. Amazingly, they said yes. I think mostly because they didn't want to do the work. They didn't want to, they wanted Epitaph to get us out to the people and then American could put out our third record if we did well with Epitaph. It was probably their plan, but. Um, yeah. Well, we had done a 45 with a, a, another independent label called Deep Elm. And, uh, and the guy from that label, from Deep Elm, had a relationship with Brett at Epitaph and he let, I don't know why, but he let Brett from Epitaph hear the demo material that we were doing and Brett flipped out. And when I want to put it out and, and then, and then John from deep Elm came back and went Epitaph want to put your record out and American didn't care. Right. Mike, I don't, I don't think, no, I don't think that. Think and, uh, yeah, and then it became a, a, an epitaph thing, and we were we had a record deal with another record company, but we were going wherever the fire looked hot, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No one in America seemed to give a shit about not just the band, but even that we had had a song that did well. Like even at the height of that, they didn't seem to give a shit. So when you have someone like Brett Gerwitz saying, "I want to put it out," and he's excited, we were willing to do anything to make that happen, and then. The American just said, okay, there didn't see any, maybe there were things going on. Maybe Brian really had to work that our manager, Brian really had to work it with mm. the label. But from, from our perspective, they were just like, all right, as long as we can like slap our logo on there too, we're good with it. They didn't do any kind of promotion or any no. kind of help with that or pay for anything or, yeah. And they forced it to be an EP. The little deaths an EP because American wouldn't let us do the full record. Oh, okay. Wow, I forgot about that. So, yeah, damn <laughs> So you're telling me that somewhere along the line, that little death could have been a full length, twelve song album with that same. Yeah, it it, it would have yeah. been. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, that brings that brings me to me it being fully introduced to your band. Um, I used to work for Ben Calles and a few, and they were on Epitaph Records. And we went down to LA on our way to Australia, and I got a copy of The Little Death, and we heard it in the van. And it was one of those moments of, 
this is it. This is exactly what I love in music. It, it was it was forceful. It was energetic. It was thought provoking. It was just all these great things that I've heard in music in the past and haven't heard, you know, going into the future. And uh, album blew me away. And I I have moments of playing that CD to other bands or to other people in a van driving down a road somewhere, and them going, "Holy shit! What is this? Like, what is you know the same." <laughs> the same effect that it had with me so much to the point where i was in i was in sweden i was at bad taste records where my band used to be on a label called bad taste records and we were looking through because they used to sell they had a record store there and we're flipping through and out pops little death and i give this to because i already had it i give it to our guitar player saying you will love this album this will be your favorite album and then cut to two days later we're listening to it in the van and it was like so that's that's the effect of that album uh, on me and uh-huh. i say american records because they should have put that record out <laughs> <laughs> a full length they should have made that that could have been your kicking off point into like or maybe it was just too intelligent for people maybe industry people are just too stupid to realize what good music is i don't know that's that's my my aspect to it well i thank you for for all that <laughs> I, I pre, uh, i'm thankful for that um at the time um we were a bit of an anomaly on Epitaph. Mm-hmm. We were we were um, a pop band, in, in effect, you know. And uh, Brett, uh, I remember thinking, uh, him telling me that he wanted to do try a different thing, and he and we were the band that he wanted to try it with, you know. Um, and uh, and I, I thought maybe that might have a little bit to do with we we were able to pop a little bit from the epitaph uh label we were different you know than than anything that they had mm-hmm. and that made it good and made it bad i'm sure you know? <laughs> well that's a full three piece too right there was no four people in the band at that point or was that just three of you at that point no, no. yeah true was it sort of because brett gerwitz produced it was it an intentional thing like let's make this sound as live and as you as possible like was that something that you know, because it sounds different to your other recordings. It just sounds like a bunch of guys playing mm-hmm. in a room. You know, was that an intention? Was that his, his intention? Because I know his production style is very, you know, bare bones. And uh, I think Brett. I mean, a combination of Brett and the engineer. I think they got the best sounds we ever got in the studio, mm-hmm. guitar wise, mm-hmm. drum wise, and um, I think you know. I mean, I think we always played everything kind of the same record to record with that energy. But that record, I thought, I think captures it better than the other ones do. And I think that's just purely that they got good tones. They really, a lot of that record, actually, I played Brett's guitar um, that he used in Bad Religion the whole time. And I don't even know what kind of guitar it is. It's this weird, Mm -hmm. it's not a Fender or a Gibson. It's some kind of weird guitar, but it sounded amazing. Yeah. And, um, Brett definitely had some of the coolest drum sounds, you know, listen to that rancid stuff that he did. And it's, it's, it's unto its own. And also he was doing his own thing at the time. Oh crap. What was it called? His solo album where he, he was doing a thing where he's doing two songs at a time. And then he was trying to make like an album out of two songs being released at a time, which I thought was crazy, but he's right. Brett, he's Brett Gerwitz. I never heard that. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. What? I had the, I had the decal. I had the name of the band on my, on my guitar, back of my guitar for a while. Yeah. yeah what were they called? I don't know. I guess I could Google I don't it. I remember. So, I'll go look on the back of my guitar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. <He's laughs> That's funny. 
Well, that sound cut out. What's he looking for? He's gonna go look in the back of his guitar to see what the uh, logo was. So that must have been before a little bit. Well, he left. He left Bad Religion on Recipe for Hate, which I think was '93, and then he started his own thing around '94, and then it was. Yeah. So two years. It would have been around that time, yeah. And? Hate you. Hate you. That's right. He didn't like bad religion at that point. He, he was out of bad religion at that point. No. Yeah. 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 Okay, now we got that. Thank you for cl- clearing that up. So <laughs> I had to go look at my guitar. <laughs> so Little Death, you tour it. Did you, what, was, what was your plans with Little Death? Like, were you going to... Did you have more plans to do more things with Epitaph? Or was that a... It had been a tough time. It had been a tough time for the band. The band kind of broke up after after we recorded the Little Death. Dave left the band before the album came out. Uh, uh, and that had a lot to do with um, uh, me. <laughs> it had a lot to do with me. And uh, uh, and we were all we were all doing what we could to try to keep our, uh, afloat, you know? And I, and I kind of did what I, I knew what to do, which turned out to be, uh, I don't know, never mind. But a- anyway, it, 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 um, it, it, Dave left and we weren't really thinking about what we were going to do. We were, we were preoccupied with trying to make sure that American won't find out that Dave quit until we had a new drummer. We knew that if they found out that we, we didn't have a drummer, we'd probably get dropped immediately. That had been my thinking at the time. And that had been what we were running on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, we were in, we were in, in, in panic mode, trying to keep the band together and trying to, trying to keep it alive. That, that kind of thing, you know, but, um, and, and when, and when Laughing Gallery didn't do well, uh, I kind of, uh, it, you know, it, it, had an, it had an effect on me, you know, mm-hmm. it, uh, it, it, uh, it had a, a, a mental effect, you know, and, and uh, depression and, and I had, I had a lot on uh, my plate and I didn't know how to deal with it then, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I think Dave and I clashed and, and uh, it, it didn't work out. Well, how old at the time were you when... 28. 28, yeah. That is that's that is a, a tricky time in life to uh, to deal, you know, because you're on the precipice of having to, quote-unquote, grow up, you know. You're at the... You're, right. You know, being 28 and sort of saying, well, how much more time do I have in this? Is, is Am I am I projecting onto you? Because I've been 28 and been in a band before, too, and gone... When is this going to happen? Like, what is going on? I have to grow up. Or... We were. Uh, I, I'm older than Mike, and and at the time, I uh, we uh, it had been agreed that we would lie, and I would tell everybody that uh, uh, I think I told people I'm 25 mm-hmm. again to to try to not fail. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. But so, were you thinking like mm. you know? I mean, you're. It's tough playing music, trying to promote yourself. It's tough to try and see what's coming down the next 20 years of your life. Did you find that being 28 was a tricky 
a mounting thing for you because 30 seems a, sounds a lot older than 28, doesn't it? Like, you know, yeah, you yeah. Know. so was it a thing? Yeah, like, we were all married. Yeah. yeah. We were married and, and we all had a mortgage to pay. And I, I think it would have been, um, better if, it, or maybe not better, but you really kind of should be 18 living at home with no pressure and no rent to pay and be on a, a record deal. You know, I mean, we, we were we were forever looking for them to help pay our mortgage while we were on a twenty dollar per diem on the road, and we'd be gone for half a year. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and you know, it yeah, they, we we were at a at an odd uh, an an odd time. You know, we were old enough to that we were probably too old to be doing it. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anymore. You know. Well, they say that, you know, that it's, uh, you know, it's funny how things changed towards the mid to late 90s where people started saying exactly what you were saying. We need young kids. We need to reinvent the music industry. We need pretty young MTV worthy faces to fill our Mm. airwaves, which I think was only a North American thing. I don't think people in Europe really thought stuff like that. Did you guys make it over to Europe Mm. and play much? Was this a, a mostly North American thing for you guys? Mostly North America. Yeah. Europe is a place that has a whole different out view. I don't know what it's like now, but I know 10 or 15 years ago, it was like, well, you know, we don't like music television. We don't like the way, you know, we don't like looking at our, you know, our artists. We like hearing our artists. And I think it's a much different um, effect to how you're perceived as a musician when they're not looking at who you are or, or sorry, what you look like, you know, or what, how old you are or how you can fit into their um, thing. I mean, Europeans don't look that way. So uh, when you go to Germany, it's like in France, not France so much, but Germany in particular is this amazing utopia for musicians. You know, uh, well, I mm-hmm. suggest you guys should go there and play because I've been trying to push you as hard as I can in Europe. <laughs> Every time I go there, you listen to this really? bit. Absolutely, I am. I am your biggest flag waver. Go. go, I will set it up. So, like, you know, I won't keep. I won't take much more of your time. But you know, I, I'm just stoked that you are actually. I met you in person because this is one of these moments that I never actually thought would actually happen based just on the fact that you're down there and up in Canada and when are you coming, you know, things. And I missed every live show you ever played because around that time I was sort of doing the same thing. I was traveling around and would never actually meet up with you. Um, but we have... like I'm glad, I'm glad that we meet now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I met some bands that had, I played with you, uh, Red 5. Um Oh, we we loved Red Five. Yeah. They're awesome. I love that band. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, we talked about you guys because I in the two thousand and one uh, on their tour bus, we talked about you guys too, because uh, yeah, I was on tour with a band called Sum Forty One. I was their tour manager, and we uh, we traveled around, and I, we met up with with um, with Red Five on their bus, and then uh, so it happened to see. I think I saw a sticker or something of yours, and I went, ah, it's one of my favorite bands. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's very cool. It's amazing. Yeah, I had that, a crush. I had a crush on Beth. Uh, my my had a band from Winnipeg called Red Fisher, and we played with them in Vancouver. And I bought this hologram of the Millennium Falcon, and I gave her one half, and I took the other half and put it on my base, and I still have it on my base. This hologram of the Millennium Falcon, and uh, I think they were in the middle of a band argument or something at the time. We're talking about Red Five. Yeah, Mike. Um. Yeah, love them. Yeah, they're awesome. Are they playing? Yeah. Are they they still a band? Like, what's going on with them? Are they all done? I don't. 
Every, I'm like, not sure. Once every few years, I'll look on YouTube and on Google, and I haven't found much. I think I saw, yeah. aside from that, I haven't seen anything. Yeah. yeah. Well, I talked to Beth. Uh, I emailed with Beth, like, in uh, in 2010 or whatever, and uh, she had been there. They weren't together. Mm-hmm. and But I think she might have been working on her own thing. Right. The other band I rediscovered, actually, is based out of Brooklyn, was Babe the Blue Ox. They're they're playing again. I don't know if you ever heard of those guys. Uh, two girls. I know a, that name. Were, yeah, they were uh, they were also RCA, I think. Yes, they were. Yeah. Yeah. Not only they, we, I lived in Brooklyn as well. They were on RCA. I barely knew them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I saw them once. I think we actually played with them once in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I didn't really know that band. They have a new album out called Guilty, which is pretty darn good too it just came out like last year oh cool yeah yeah they're a neat band they're three also three piece but the um they're uh very sort of quirky weird weird notes stuff like that but uh yeah how did they do that did they did they put it on out on their own label or an independent or, I think or, on I, or? itunes i think it's just on their own thing through itunes yeah yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's cool because it, they didn't really go too far off the beaten path as to what they're kind of known for, which is kind of neat, you know. So, so you mm-hmm. guys, you guys, okay. So we're sort of like late '90s. Um, did anything kind of wacky happen between then and 2000? Because you kind of changed your name, and all this stuff went went down. Um, was was there? Because there's about five years <laughs> of of early 2000s to late 90s was we broken up for a while when did you actually break up no uh what happened after that we uh we f- we we did find a new drummer um and uh we added uh another guitar player and then we put out an album called um are you my friend okay yes and under ruth ruth mm-hmm. and uh and well, man, I, yeah, no, I'm thinking about. Are you my friend? Had been originally recorded for American, okay, and American, in effect, dropped the band right after we had tracked the album, and but they wouldn't let the band out of the contract. And then uh, we went back to playing at the Continental, and uh, we got another uh, record deal. And they bought the album from American, and they put it out, which turned out to BMG, you know, which turned out mm-hmm. to be "Are You My Friend." Okay, yeah. And then, uh, and then we were going to do another album for them, and the our A and R guy told me that uh, he thought that by that point. On, uh, after three, uh, that uh, that Ruth Ruth had a bad reputation at radio, and uh, that nobody would add a Ruth Ruth record, and that he wanted the band to put out another album, but the only way that he would allow it would be if we changed our name. Okay. Which, which you know, uh, had been hard. You know, I mean, we'd worked really hard for what we were built. We didn't feel that way. You know what that you know, that we'd have to change our name, you know, but, but again, we didn't want to get dropped. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, we took, we took the shot and we, we changed the name and we really kind of changed the band. Uh, I changed my writing. Uh, I changed it for that album. 
and we took more of like a a, a real kind of commercial pop vein with Ultra V, and and actually that turned out to be a really fun album to make. Mm-hmm. I mean, by that time, by that time, uh, I had been. Uh, getting a professional help <laughs> mm-hmm. and, you know yeah. and i felt a little bit better and 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 could have a little bit more fun you know yeah and then after that album came out we were dropped and uh and the band broke up uh and uh from like oh one to oh three i had been doing a thing on my own uh, I had I'd written a bunch of material and I would go out and perform it in New York with a, uh, it had been like a pre-recorded tape with video and I really had fun doing it. Um, but I, you know, I never really put it out. And, uh, and then in 04, we, we got back together to do right about now. Oh, okay. All right. So that's, uh, that's an, that's a that's a that's a bit of a spread, you know. So just were you were you working a job? Were you still how are you how are you sort of making ends meet? Like did you did you change your you obviously changed yeah, your career? Yeah, I mean no no, the whole I've been fortunate enough to work for my father mm-hmm. um for early on and uh he had been an attorney and I and I and I worked for him and it would be the kind of thing where um I'd be working for him for like a year and a half and then I'd get a record deal. And I tell him, Dad, I gotta go, <laughs> and he'd be like, Okay, and then I'd go, and it would be a two-year whirlwind, and I'd get dropped and come back. <laughs> Can I have my job back? And he'd be like, Sure. And then I would do another year and a half to get another record deal, mm-hmm. and everything would repeat. And there were about four or five of them, you know. Wow. That that that, that would happen. Yeah. That's very fortunate. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, 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 really fortunate. Yeah. And, and I knew then, I knew it then that, yeah. uh, that no, I mean, like, it, I don't know, it couldn't have been done if if uh, if a, a lot didn't come into play, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But, but we couldn't have, uh, what I mean by that, we couldn't have hung on for that long. Without that support you know, system. Without, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very, very neat. So you guys have have when did you open your facebook page because i don't know what made me just sort of like i'm gonna see what ruth Roos up to and then i realized hey everybody's on facebook and i found you there how long have you been on facebook and and what sort of what sort of um reaction are you getting from old fans i mean are you getting a lot of people like how is this is it getting you to bug um well yeah i mean like uh we haven't been on for that long maybe a year mm-hmm. uh and we don't have many people Mm-hmm. But uh, I think we've got like 200 people following the thing right now. But man, the, the, the I get I get a note like that beautiful note that I got from you, mm-hmm. you know, and I get them and they they mean a lot to me. You know okay. what I mean? Yeah. So we don't have quantity, but we have quality. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and uh, and um, they mean a lot to me. And I and I hear people talking about like what you talked about about that it had been meaningful to them mm-hmm. and that'll make me feel really, that'll make me feel really good and kind of make the whole thing worthwhile, you know? Yeah. And if you go back to little death and you think of the lyrics and you know, the whole, it's pretty angst ridden. It's pretty, you know, it's, I don't know how close to, um, to home those lyrics are, but definitely, uh, it resonates to me on being a mid 
twenties or early twenties old dude and going, Oh my God, I have lived this, you know? And so I, 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 yeah, I you know, yeah, I don't, you know, a lot of, a, a lot of them, the little death were, were kind of autobiographical. Yeah. I don't want to, I, I don't want to poo poo the stuff on the other side of it because it's just equally as important. But just for me, let me nerd out for two sex because I, I really, you know, I, I think yeah. you know that album. It, it was a, uh, a a game changer for me. There's not too many records that come out that change how I think about things musically and and, and approach wise and the influence. You know, uh, well, you know, well, you 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 follow uh, Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden. <laughs> You know, just how, wow. you know, like that's, and that's, you know, Squeeze, Argy Bargy, um, oh God, I get Armed Forces, Elvis Costello, they all sort of fall in that sort of realm of, holy crap, this has completely opened my eyes and, and a game changer for, for sure. And, and to the people that, you know, the industry people that sort of pushed you around and told you how to be. It's tough. You can't tell them to say you're wrong because, in many respects, they think they're completely right. And some right. in about yeah. a little minute of it is right, but it's only right because someone told them it's right. So right. we don't right. we don't know what's going to be the next musical amazing. We don't know who the Beatles are going to be. You know, we don't know who the next Beach right. Boys. Think about how they cultivated a career. You know, like. It's all mm -hmm. by chance, right? You know, and you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I really yeah, well, I appreciate you. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. <laughs> well, that's cool. Um, I, uh, I would like to one day see a Ruth Ruth come up to Toronto. You know, like you already put a live album out, which I've, I've, I've heard. But is there any chance right. that there's going to be a Ruth Ruth? show in and around this area if not even in new york like I'll, I'll come down yeah well mike and i literally are are trying to maybe make that happen mm -hmm. um we both agree that we kind of don't want to play at continental <laughs> <laughs> we've done that enough you know yeah uh and we don't want to play for maybe the 20 people that might come you know right um, not that we don't want to play for them. I'd love to play for them, but yeah, I know what you're saying. We're kind of, we're, we're, we're hoping that maybe we might be able to get like a cool gig, you know, like an opening gig. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that would mean, uh, our drummer would have to fly in from California mm -hmm. and which he already told me he would, which would be fun, you mm -hmm. know, but we're, 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 we're chatting and Mike and I are, are mainly, um, Mike and I have been playing in a cover band together that he put together and we've been having a lot of fun doing that and and uh, and our friendship endured mm -hmm. which you know really important and i think um i think uh you never know what might happen you know yeah. I mean, uh, it, it could it could happen and um uh i married a girl from canada oh could you you, you know you never know what might happen <laughs> you know uh <laughs> But we didn't play. We didn't play in Canada enough. We played Toronto. We yeah. played Vancouver, mm -hmm. and you know, it, it. It. I wish we would have played more there. But uh, we had a great time every time we went there. Canada's so wide and vast. And there's not enough places to play. Like you, you know, being mm -hmm. from the East Coast, you can drive three hours and play a show, and drive three more hours and play another show. Um, we don't have that luxury. Yeah, but really. we should have played. We should have played Calgary, man. We should have yeah. played Calgary. We could have done that. You know, we could have played. Uh, 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 Toronto more. Yeah, 
Well, mm-hmm. you know, the whole border crossing and, you know, even back then was a bit of a rash trying to get across in the work papers. And, um, yeah, yeah, you're right about that. Yeah. Nobody, nobody slights you for that. Cause I, you know, I think even this year they actually started opening up artist visas um, and made it a little easier mm. for Americans and Canadians to cross over. I mean, you're not cool. As an American, you're not going to come and steal our, our culture anymore i think <laughs> we're 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 okay we got it sorted out yeah you know? <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but um i are you right do you still write songs because i know i know people that just still write songs they would just keep writing and writing and writing is that sort of you to an or do you just how do you write do you just sit down and say i'm going to write a song or does it just pop out i think um i've come to the conclusion that i would be writing whether or not I did anything with it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I write all the time pretty much. And, uh, uh, I've been working on a lot of, um, material, my, that would be like my own material kind of like, uh, um, you know, like I'll play it for my wife and she'll tell me that she really liked it. And then I should record it that way, you know, like me and the guitar. And I've been doing that and I've been enjoying that. And I've got a, I've got about an album worth of, material recorded um but i've been writing all along and uh i write in the car i i have a hand i have a type tape recorder you know a handheld tape mm-hmm. recorder and i i do that and and uh i find it uh therapeutic apparently <laughs> do you um <laughs> writing what you do know? you write do you write vocal melodies and then try to put some chords to it or, or are you a can you hear it all in your head and realize that it's going to be this type of chord and this type of next chord. Uh, yeah. I do a lot of writing without uh, the guitar. You know what I mean? I do it in my head and I do it on the tape recorder, like while I'm driving or whatever, yeah. like the other day. And you never know when it'll happen, but like the other day on the way to work, uh, I've got about an hour drive to work and I wrote an entire tune in that hour. You know what I mean? Like really? and occasionally it'll come like that quick, that quickly. Yeah. Or it'll come from me noodling around on the guitar, or, or mm-hmm. um, but it could be anything. It could be a title. It could be um, an idea, uh, maybe that I've picked up from film, or mm-hmm. you know, or or maybe a book that I've been reading, or that kind of thing. And and I'll think uh, that would be a cool tune. I've been mm-hmm. doing a thing that I've never done before too. I've been keeping a, uh, a like a lyric book like a lyric journal. Yeah. And if I get an idea, I'll write it down in there and, uh, and that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I used to use my phone singing to my phone a lot and I used to keep the notes part, but I thought, Oh, but I realized that (laughs) if someone, someone read my phone and read my notes, it would be, you know, (laughs) what the hell is this person going on about? Like, if I happen to, like, get hit by a bus, the last thing I want to do is having people (laughs) read my inner thoughts on my phone, you know? I'll just, you know, I'll I'll wait for the lyrics so I can actually finalize what I have to say because I am guilty for just writing streams of consciousness and not making any points, you know? (laughs) But uh, Right, right. Yeah, Yeah, no, I I hear what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I'm coming coming up on... um, I have two children now, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to be uh, reading 
probably what I wrote, you know, I mean, they're <laughs> going to be reading the little death and they're going to be, and they're probably going to be like, what the hell, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> what, what, who, you know, who, who are you kind of a thing. But, uh, yeah. but, um, but that, you know, I mean, poetry, you know? Yeah. Well, All right. I wouldn't be ashamed. If you, if you got, if you got hit by a truck, I'll tell everybody that, uh, <laughs> that you were writing poetry. <laughs> And that they shouldn't judge you. <laughs> and, and I'll tell everybody that your album was a concept album. Right. <laughs> there Thank we you. go. There we go. Yeah. We've made our handshake. Right. Well, Chris, I really, mm -hmm. I really appreciate you coming on this podcast. And we had some technical glitches at the start, but um, if you ever want to come back and talk on the podcast ever again, and and Mike too, when he gets better internet, I don't know whatever he's using. <laughs> there's some sort of crappy service, maybe dial up. <laughs> but, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> but we can definitely yeah. sit down and talk about music because um, that's kind of what this thing's about. And and you know, and, and as mm -hmm. as a listener and as a fan, I I can't say it enough about how much um, there's people like us out there that sort of go, oh, thank you for doing this. You fulfilled something, and and uh, and for that, I am very grateful. Not just for the interview, but for the fact that there's people like you who who think like me. Is that weird? That's weird. Uh, That's a little weird. No, no. no? Okay. I, I, uh, I, I'm very uh, grateful. <laughs> Thank you uh, for wanting to, to talk with me. Right on. There you have it. Chris Kennedy and Mike Listig of Ruth Ruth. How fun was that? Those guys are cool. I've never met them in person until that, that night we did the interview. I was, I was really, I had a great time doing that interview. I hope they did too. From what I gather, everybody had a good time. So anyways, don't forget to go to apolog.esy.es. Click the little plus sign on the right side, and there's an Amazon link to go shopping for Amazon. Although this podcast is free, the freest part of anything I've ever done in my life, it still costs a few bucks to drive around and do these interviews. So we don't necessarily have to keep lights on, but it'd be really cool if you, everybody kind of just shop, just click the link, cost you no extra money. Like, come on, how hard can it be? Regardless. Next week, we have a guy named Kevin Waite who lives out in Nova Scotia, Halifax area, and dedicated a YouTube channel for the Le Studio channel, which is an old recording studio based in Morn Heights, Quebec. And I kind of, I'm a little bit interested to see what's happening with that recording space. And one day I came upon his channel and realized that the place is completely downtrodden and ready to fall over. So come back next week, everybody. I'll be here. See ya. Sleep tight.